Emirates are bringing the other side of the world closer to home with daily flights from London Stansted. Starting the 8th of June, you'll be able to fly from London Stansted all the way to Dubai and on to over 150 destinations worldwide, making getting from your home to the other side of the world much simpler. Fly Emirates from London Stansted and discover the other side of the world. This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning, it's Fun Friday. My name is Jeff Sandu. After a week away, could it be that Culture Pop's Matt Armitage has been energised by the mood of optimism sweeping throughout Malaysia? Well, you might as well actually ask a fish to run a marathon because we're diving back into the murky depths of Matt's mind as he takes a look at some of the darker discoveries on the horizon. It's time to Matt's plane. Hey Matt, so couldn't you have done a little bit more of a happy, happy, joy, joy stuff? Just just one week, Matt, just for one week. Hey Jeff, well, I've been really upbeat and uplifting over the past few weeks. It's just that you've been away on holiday, so you've <laughs> missed me being happy, Matt. Uh, and I've been talking a lot about empowerment and how we don't need to be enthralled to powerful institutions like technology companies. Mm-hmm. And I think it's rubbed off. Look at the election result. Oh, I can confidently say that had nothing to do with you at all. And rightly so. I wouldn't have wanted it to have anything to do with me. If it had, you would uh, all be being ruled by a feline artificial intelligence called King Jafar which would also be good for me as Instagram Governing Services, my latest company, would have controlled most government expenditure and I would probably have built an enormous skate park based on the shape of my belly. Mm, Because I can. Yeah, I know. Nice image. (laughs) And despite the topic of today's show, um, it's not about negativity and doom and gloom, at least not in my opinion. Okay. It's an excuse to have a look at some of the weirder and more bizarre technologies and developments that have been showing up on the radar recently. So a fun Friday at last. Well, I'm not going to write any checks that my mouth can't cash, so I'm not going to give you any guarantees, but yeah, I'm going to have fun. Yeah, but your your definition of fun, though, it's a little bit of an upside-down kind of definition, right? Yeah, I know. Well, one of the things I've had a lot of feedback about from the shows over the past few weeks mm. while you've been away was the idea of putting chips in your head. Mm. I think that people found the idea of sharing their consciousness with a sentient machine, well, you know, a little bit alarming. And I can understand that uh, because weird as it seems, this type of enhancement and biohacking is going to become increasingly commonplace over Mm. the next few decades. And this week, I actually watched a movie called uh, Anon, which Mm. is written and directed by uh, Andrew Nichol the guy behind Gattaca and In Time and The Truman Show and a bunch of other dystopian movies. So without giving too much away, it's about a society that has no anonymity, where your eyesight is essentially CCTV. Mm. Everything you see is recorded and uploaded to the cloud where it can be accessed by government officials. So China. (laughs) In your opinion. Um, Access to that cloud also enables all citizens to see information about every person they meet. So there's like an augmented reality overlay on Uh. every person you meet. So your eyesight basically has become that augmented reality layer. So even the electronic 
billboards on the buildings are all virtual. Everything is just overlaid. So I realised that this dovetails quite nicely with what I've been talking about over the last few weeks. That it's a really bad idea, right? Well, no, more that it's a really good idea that could have really bad consequences. <laughs> okay. you know, one of the aspects that's becoming increasingly apparent when we talk about biohacking and DNA tweaking uh, and uh, what are terrifyingly called smart babies mm. Did you know that actually a smart baby is still less useful than a smart toaster? Anyway, um, one of the aspects is the potential to create tiered societies mm. or rather uh, even more tiered societies, creating in a sense what you might call superhumans. And these people would be able to continue to advance themselves or those like them at the expense of the vast majority of people who can't afford these enhancements. In the movie Anon, Everyone seems to have these enhancements equally, mm. which is a good thing. Mm -hmm. However, those enhancements are used for universal surveillance, which is, of course, a bad thing. Okay, so let's stick with this enhancement angle. We've talked about it a few times now about DNA projects where governments are trying to harvest the DNA of all their citizens and sequence it in the name of public health. Yeah, exactly. And on the face of it, that's a really good idea mm. because... Medical technology is allowing us to live longer. Uh, one of the downsides of that from a cost perspective is that we stay alive while our bodies slowly mm. fall to pieces. See, I know how to be cheerful. Um, that kind of DNA sequencing would show what type of illnesses or cancers or conditions we might be susceptible to. It's certainly not a foolproof system because you can't tell with any degree of certainty what illnesses a person will get any more than you can guarantee that they're not going to get something else. But it does mean that you can be monitored and tested for certain conditions and get early treatment at least, right? Well, yeah, and it is a growing trend. Uh, there have been a couple of stories in the press this week about women who are opting for voluntary mastectomies at mm. quite a young age because they have a much higher than average chance of going on to develop breast cancer. So this trend is actually already on us. Uh, this kind of preventive medicine and uh, medical treatment is going to be much more common until we get to the point where we can simply edit the genes out of our DNA, which of course, as you said, is something that's also on the horizon. <laughs> but as I've said in um, previous shows, there are quality of life and cost aspects to this kind of medical approach. If you have a population that's healthier and can work productively for longer, that means they contribute taxes to the government and they help to increase national wealth. At the other end of the spectrum, that means they're incurring fewer medical costs on society, especially when it comes to chronic or long-term conditions that typically require extensive and expensive treatment. So it's kind of a win-win for society. The downside being that the government can track and monitor using your DNA. Well, if chips in the head are very much like the film Anon, then mm. DNA tracking is rather like Gattaca. Um, of course, you're likely to have fewer cases of loans being taken out in your name or other mm, kinds mm. of identity theft if everything links back to a DNA sample. But do we have any real guarantees about how this information is going to be stored and shared. So, so that information could be used to deny us public services. Yeah, um, using an example I've used on the show before, mm. I'm wearing an Apple Watch right now. It has a, a permanent 
heart rate sensor, which I choose to turn off. <laughs> I know that there is a current vogue for tracking your blood pressure and heart rate. So for a professional hypochondriac like me, that's just a race to the darkest parts <laughs> of a, a Google search. <laughs> as I convince myself, I'm probably harboring uh, uh, one or two uh, novel illnesses as well as everything else that's uh, ever been in, uh, oh invented. Mm. But it's possible to envisage a future where an insurance company might demand that you wear a health tracker to mm -hmm. monitor you at all times and for them to be able to see real-time data. And of course, if you then stop using that, it might invalidate your insurance. Similarly, an insurance company or a national health provider might suspend that coverage if you break their terms. Uh, let's say that you had liver problems and you promised not to drink alcohol. Mm -hmm. Quite a sensible approach. But if it was determined that you had had a drink, maybe through surveillance or maybe through monitoring of your blood, then you might find yourself having to pay for all your medical treatment in future because your coverage has been withdrawn, mm. either by an insurer or by the, the national coverer. And nobody is actually willing to cover your treatment anymore. So what you're trying to say is that it's important that we determine how these technologies will be used. Yeah, because there's potentially an even darker side oh, to how this uh, information <laughs> yeah, might be course, used. Yeah. <laughs> um, as the technologies involved get simpler and more affordable, we face the prospect of people conducting the, the kind of science experiments that would have been impossible outside multi-million dollar labs just a few years ago. Mm. Uh, we've covered the biohacking movement a little bit on the show over the years. And as we see more tools like 3D bioprinters becoming available as well as really powerful computers that can simulate and model extremely massive data sets, we also run the risk of amateurs messing with genes mm. and viruses in ways that would have been impossible just a few short years ago. Uh, you mean bioterrorism. This is a very cool name, by the way. Bioterrorism, well, bioterrorism yeah. yeah. And it's certainly possible. Um, mm. You know, again, everything seems to be coming back to sci-fi movies today. <laughs> but I guess that's just because technology is finally catching up with people's imagination. So this scenario is a bit like the film 12 Monkeys. Mm. Um, it might be like the TV show too, but I haven't watched that, so I can't <laughs> say. At the moment, the screening tools at airports look for explosives and drugs and guns, you know, the usual kind of prohibited items. In the future we may have to get used to being screened for bioweapons as well, oh. not just in our baggage, but internally, because in this scenario, weaponized viruses could actually be carried inside an individual, inside a person, and the person becomes the weapon. So in that case, the more widely the terrorist travels, the more people they come into contact with, and the wider the dispersal of the weapon. Can we have some good news, Matt? There is a lot of good news. <laughs> yeah, really? Um, no, we had reports this week that the first effective cure for the uh, common cult for a rhinovirus has been detected. Now, one of mm. the factors uh, that make it so hard uh, to cure the common cold is that what we call a cold is actually hundreds of different viruses or rather variations of those viruses. So when we find a cure for one, the virus simply mutates into a form mm. that the vaccine can't treat. Researchers at Imperial College London found a way to stop the rhinovirus replicated. And I don't pretend to understand this properly. <laughs> they found a way to stop the virus bonding with the enzymes that form a coating around them. And this fatty layer is what allows them to go on and infect other cells. So rather than exterminating the virus, it's a bit like forming a roadblock. Ah, and mm. this is much harder for the virus to overcome because as far as the virus is concerned, nothing is actually wrong. It isn't mm. under attack. It's not being sprayed by some viral weed killer that it can develop a tolerance 
parents to, it simply doesn't undergo that last stage of mutation that allows it to replicate. So when will this wonder drug will be able to cure our sniffles? Well, it's still in the very early stages. Mm. They've tested it on human cells in a lab, so they haven't done any clinical trials with animals or human beings yet. So it's still going to be a few years. And don't forget, you know, we talked about that DNA technology or that gene technology. It may only be a few years before we can simply edit out uh, or edit in mm. an immunity to cold and flu viruses at the source, which again goes back to that earlier point I made about technology being made available to people equally to prevent this divide between humans and superhumans. Mm. We're definitely back. Well, Matt Armitage is definitely back because so far we've had only one fun story, one good story at least and uh, expect none of this when we come back because we will be talking about remote control cockroaches. Yep, BFM 89.9. Emirates are bringing the other side of the world closer to home with daily flights from London Stansted. Starting the 8th of June, you'll be able to fly from London Stansted all the way to Dubai and on to over 150 destinations worldwide, making getting from your home to the other side of the world much simpler. Fly Emirates from London Stansted and discover the other side of the world. Bodacious, fabulous minds. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. And we're back. My name is Jeff Sandu and you're listening to Matt's Plane with Culture Pop's Matt Armitage. This week, Matt's got some scary monsters and super creeps lodged in his brain, probably still stuck in there. Anyways, and anything he gets infected with, he decides to share with the world. Right, remote control cockroaches. Despite what mm. this sounds like, this is actually a story about drones. Mm. Um, and wherever you look, there seem to be stories about drones right now. Uh, we have a jetpack story coming <laughs> in Geeks, which is also part of the, the drone tale. Uh, the big commercial and military uh, UAVs, flying drones, uh, are really just normal aircraft without a pilot. They yeah. have mm. plenty of space for fuel. With the remote control consumer drones that are popular right now, the main problem with them is flight time because flying requires a lot of power and energy. But once you start adding extra battery packs to something that flies, it quickly becomes too heavy to stay in the air. So the scientists are making insect-sized drones instead. Don't, don't they have the same power issues as well, though? Well, you're kind of on the right track, but we're going a bit more cyborg-y. Mm. Uh, we're not looking at tiny drones. Uh, researchers at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore have carried out experiments with the M. torcata beetle, mm -hmm. and they give them tiny little backpacks. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, and they're not doing it for fashion reasons, in case you're thinking this is Kanye West's latest style experiment. Um, if it were, I'd call it Yeezy Breezy. Um, attached to the backpacks are electrodes that connect to the flight muscles of the beetle. So in that way, oh. researchers are able to send electric pulses to the muscles and remotely control the insects during flight. So they can cause oh. them to fly left <laughs> or right and up and down. Um, right. And what they mm. want to do in the future is to be able to get them to hover. Uh, and because they have their own power, they can stay longer in the air. They're actually a lot easier to fly than oh. a drone because <laughs> flying is what beetles yeah, do. They're they do, much yeah. better adapted to life in the air. So turbulence and the other stuff is what they do naturally. And we need loads of sensors to help us with that. And of course, beetles are really, really cheap. Um, building a tiny nanobot is expensive, but bugs are 
pretty much yeah. everywhere. Everywhere, yeah. Yeah. So the next step is to integrate stuff like carbon dioxide and infrared sensors, and they could be used in disaster relief situations such as looking for survivors under mm. rubble and collapsed buildings. And the cockroaches? Well, the Nanyang team believes you can saddle up most insects in mm. a similar way. Uh, and researchers in the U.S. have already used drones to control cockroaches for similar search and rescue purposes. Mm. So in the future, the cockroach may be seen as a life-saving device. Oh, yeah. But, but I remember a story last year about drones replacing insects. It was bees, I think, right? Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that is so fascinating about this kind of technology, the way it works in both direction. So on the one hand, we're talking about using organic life as a way to overcome weaknesses in our material technology. So using the, the beetles mm. as, a, as a piloted drone. But we can also use that technology to plug gaps while we repair damage to the organic life on the planet. You mean geoengineering? Well, a little bit. I mean, if we go back to the bees, mm. we've had a lot of stories about declining bee populations and the possible links to various pesticides. A lot of countries are banning those chemicals, but it will take time to see if the measures are enough to allow bee populations to rebound. In the meantime, some scientists are using drones to prepare for the worst-case scenario, which is a world without bees. Mm. And I know that doesn't sound too bad, but bees and other insects pollinate as much as 75% of all the crops on our planet. Yeah. In the event of a bee die-off, it's possible that we would experience, you know, global famine. So a guy called... Uh, Eijiro Miyako and a team at uh, Japan's National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology have been creating drones that can actually do this pollination work. Of course, it would be very, very expensive. It would be a last-ditch solution mm. because you'd need millions of the machines to go from flower to yeah. flower and pollinate all of these things. So it would be much better to find ways to save the bees. But if we can't do that, anything beats starving to death. You mentioned nanobots. How's that technology coming along? Yeah, we've talked about a lot of different types of nanobots on the show. We've talked about tiny machines that could be injected into the bloodstream or other parts of the body and used to deliver targeted amounts of drugs to specific sites, kind of like a, a highly honed chemotherapy treatment. Uh, generally, we talk about machines that would dissolve harmlessly and be excreted from the body. What's really worrying some trend watchers is the possibility for weaponized nanotechnology, similar to the threat of uh, bioterrorism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The idea is that a hostile state actor might release swarms of nanobots to consume pretty much everything in their path. Um, I think we've mentioned grey goo on the well, show uh, yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. So where the machines are basically eating everything and leaving biologically inert dust behind them. Mm. That dust would blow up. It would uh, block out sunlight in the stratosphere. It would replace the soil. And it could render huge areas and potentially the entire planet devoid of life and uninhabitable. Would anyone do that? Well, it might get to a point where it's a bit like the nuclear weapons we have now. Um, the idea that the ultimate weapon is the ultimate deterrent. Mm. So each side has so much weaponry that they can destroy the world 20 times over. And that's the thing that stops you from doing it. Mm. Um, it's pretty much drunk guy logic as far as uh, <laughs> yeah. I can see. So, you know, your opinion on it probably reflects how you think about <laughs> nuclear weapons. Certainly on an individual level, studies have found that gun owners are more likely to shoot yeah. other people. Mm. So I would say that I'm ambivalent towards the idea idea of this deterrent at best. Mm. 
But it's much harder to undo technology and knowledge unless you go ahead and destroy the world and uh, get rid of technology that way. It's much better not to invent these things in the first yeah. place. So I don't think I'm looking forward to uh, the world of nano weapons. Mm. Let's go somewhere a little less dark. Uh, what about tiny homes? Yeah, the tiny homes movement is a really cool one. It's a response to rising land and housing prices in developed countries. So tiny homes are highly efficient, but very small homes. They're often prefabricated and they can be erected quickly and cheaply and they offer a decent standard of living. They're not ideal family homes, but they suit older or childless couples and obviously single people. So we're seeing them start to pop up in lots of different countries. They seem to be quite popular with architects as well, I guess, because it's, you know, it's a fun challenge mm. to make small spaces as versatile and usable as possible. Some are single rise, some are landed with small gardens or vegetable gardens, others are in blocks. Again, low rise, but not always. And it's also a way of mixing up new and converted purpose old architecture as well. Is that the future? Smaller spaces for everyone? Well, this is more of a personal opinion here, not a, a scientific mm -hmm. one. I think that tiny homes are a great idea from a population point of view. <laughs> um, I think they're a terrible idea from an economic point of view. That's because you just like to live in your own little bubble in that small little space, right? Well, like, you, you don't like people, like, you know, smaller babies. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, smart babies. I actually <laughs> like lots of space. I like lots of space and no people. But if it's a question of space yeah. in that we mm. need to find a balance between, you know, growing populations and the land area, we need to grow food and still maintain some of the wild and natural land, then, of course, tiny homes make a lot of sense. As long as, you know, we still have those communal hmm. green and recreational areas as well, because what we don't want is for these things to end up being virtual cocoons or tiny cubicles, mm. again, like in mm. sci-fi movies. Mm -hmm. But if we're building tiny homes because rich people are buying up all the decent sized properties and oh, forcing yeah, prices yeah, upwards, mm -hmm. then tiny homes are a terrible idea. Mm. Have you heard the term uh, landscraper before? Nope, I've not heard. What is that? Well, that's the term that's being used for the huge campuses that a lot of the technology companies are building, uh, especially the ones that are being built in the heart of developed cities. I think uh, Google has come under criticism from the UK media for a project it's building in London. So critics argue that the land used for these sprawling, low-rise, low-density campuses could be much better used for affordable accommodation for ordinary people because they're fantastic places yeah. for people to go and work, but they take up huge amounts of, mm. of space. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget as well that the, the people working on these campuses, many of whom are migrants to the area, will also then be looking for housing in the surrounding area, which in turn can price long-term residents out of their homes yeah. and force them further out to the city. Uh, there are actually some really interesting stories about people who work as support staff on the tech campuses in Silicon Valley. Often they work for third-party agencies, they help to run the canteens and the cleaning services, mm. and there's a number of them who are effectively homeless. Yeah, They're living yeah. out of their cars because yeah. they can't afford to live anywhere close by to where they work. Mm. So, you know, it is a question of looking at the kind of society we want to live in. Do we embrace tiny homes because we've made a conscious decision to sacrifice space for the sake of that society? I would say sacrifice society in terms of my <laughs> space. Um, or are we saying that we are being forced into smaller yeah, and yeah. smaller housing units because of economic and technological inequality? Hey, we haven't talked about AI or robots yet. I know that we're going to talk about mm. Google and mm, its mm. auto-response systems and assistance after the break in Geek, so I'm not going to ruin that. Um, 
I don't think there's any question that we're headed for a much more automated future. So this is where I come back to my ongoing campaign for smart artificial intelligence. <laughs> because dumb machines are a real pain. Anyone who's tried a, a human-free check-in facility or those horrible automated phone systems mm. knows how painful they can be. Machines are going to replace a lot of jobs. And more specifically, they're going to replace a lot of the jobs where normally we would expect to have a lot of interaction with the other person. So, for example, things like banking and loan approvals, um, airlines and hotel desks. You know the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And things where a little bit of nuances is, re is required. Yeah. Um, take me as an example, which is never a good example. Um, because I'm a foreigner in Malaysia, pretty much any transaction I try to do with the bank online is automatically rejected. Uh, as soon as I enter a passport number instead of an IC number, mm -hmm. my application for whatever is automatically declined. I have to speak to a human being because they need a lot of additional documentation from me. And that's fair enough. Mm -hmm. I understand that. As soon as you move to a system where there are no human beings, then all you have is machines that can follow a set of guidelines, which are machines that reject me. Um, things can only be black or white or right or wrong. So we're starting to see these systems also coming into areas like law enforcement and even in determining uh, the level of sentencing mm. at a judicial level. So I'm not, in, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have machines involved in these processes or situations. But until those machines have similar reasoning powers to a human, I think we certainly can't call them a replacement. Any final horror on the horizon, Matt? Just a very quick one. I found this on a Gizmodo feed from a few years ago, actually, and it's quite fascinating. So we talked earlier about technologies to extend life and enhance human beings. Those same technologies could also be used to extend the punishment for people. So you hear about people being given sentences of hundreds of years, especially in the United States, you know, someone mm -hmm. gets sentenced to 300 years for <laughs> whatever. Um, but we could use life extended treatments mm. to actually make people serve all of those hundreds of years. In fact, we could go beyond that, um, a bit like that Black Mirror episode from last year. We could get to the point where we can upload or share consciousness to the cloud. And that technology can also be used for criminals uploading mm. their consciousness to a virtual prison. Mm. And if that's not weird enough, with a digital mind, we can also manipulate the concept of time. We could speed up time and make someone serve a sentence of a thousand years. What? I mean, they'll experience <laughs> yeah. it in real time. Yeah. But to us, it would just be a few hours, including all the rehabilitation. So I've got no idea whether you would go mad in that time or whether this approach would uh, turn out to save money. But, you know, it does go to show you what a strange place the future could turn out to be. Mm. Hope you've enjoyed the week of optimism sweeping in throughout Malaysia because Matt Armitage is back. <laughs> And this was a fun Friday indeed. We'll be right back after this uh, more uh, with Geek Squawks. Also, you can check out culturepop.com for the transcripts of the show. And of course, you can find out how you can bring a little bit of Matt's planning to your company. Uh, we'll be right back with Geek Squawks after this. BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.